0: Radical candor requires undoing training that's been pounded into us since we were 18 months old and 18 years old. This whole be professional stuff, or if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all idiom. So how can we be radically candid when we have all this sort of powerful training behind us? It's hard.
1: Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today's episode is, There is no diplomacy like candor. Wise words from E.V. Lucas. Candor, specifically radical candor, is a subject that our guest Kim Scott knows a lot about. Kim is the author of Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity, which is a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller. In addition, she's the co-founder of the company Radical Candor. Radical Candor has been a huge inspiration and a foundational element of our company's culture, so I'm really excited to dig in with you today on the topic.
0: Great to be here, and I'm hoping I'll get some Radical Candor (laughs) on Radical Candor. You'll tell me what works and what doesn't.
1: (laughs) Perfect. That'll be like a, a picture in a picture. We'll see if we yes. can we can pull that off. Very meta. So oh, don't get me started on the meta and my kids <laughs> watching people play video games. I just I still I still can't figure it out. But wow, uh, that'll, that'll that'll be another episode. Yeah, so it'd be, it'd be great if you could share a bit about your background. How were you first introduced to the concept of radical candor?
0: Well, I, you know, I think that it was a long time coming. It, one of my first experiences with perhaps radical candor was not being radically candid. Uh, early in my career, I had started this software company called Juice and I came into work one day and I got an email with an article, a link to an article from like 10 people. And it was this article about how people would rather have a boss who is a total asshole than one who is really nice but incompetent. And I thought, gosh, am I getting this because I'm a total asshole or because I'm nice but incompetent? (laughs) And which is worse? And surely these are not my two choices. That really sort of got me thinking on it. And it was probably my ideas around, around radical candor began to solidify when I was working at Google which had a very radically candid culture. Uh, so I was working for Sheryl Sandberg and I remember early in my career, I had to give a presentation to the founders and the CEO. And I walked into the meeting and there is Sergey Brin, one of the co-founders in toe shoes on a treadmill. And, I'm, and there's Eric Schmidt, so deep in his email, it's like his brain has been plugged into the machine. And like any normal person in this situation, I'm wondering, how. what's my role in this room? How am I supposed to get these people's attention? Luckily for me, the the business that I was leading was on fire. And when I said how many AdSense customers we had added over the last couple of months, Eric almost fell off his chair. And he looked at me and he said, what do you need? Do you need more marketing dollars? Do you need more engineers? So, you know, I'm thinking the meeting's going okay. In fact, I think I'm a genius. And as I walked as I walked out of the room, I passed by my boss Cheryl, and she said, "Why don't you?" I'm expecting you know a high five or a pat on the back or something. And she said, "Why don't you walk back to my office with me?" And I thought, "Oh boy, I've done something wrong, and I'm sure I'm about to hear about it." And Cheryl started the conversation by telling me about the things I had done well, uh, not in a feedback sandwich kind of sense of the word, but really giving me some information that I wasn't aware of. But of course. All I wanted was to hear about what I had done wrong. And eventually, Cheryl said to me, you said I'm a lot in there. Were you aware of it? And I kind of made this brush-off gesture with my hand. And I said, I know it's a verbal tick. It's no big deal, Matt, really. And then she said... I know a great speech coach, Google would pay for it, would you like an introduction? And I made this brush off gesture again with my hand. And I said, no, I'm busy. Didn't you hear about all those new customers? Who cares if I say, um, when I have a tiger by the tail? And Chell stopped, she looked right at me, and she said, Kim, when you say, um, every third word, it makes you sound insecure and stupid. Now, she asked my full attention. <laughs> no more brush off gesture with the hand. And some people would say it was mean of Cheryl to say that, but in fact, it was the kindest thing she could have done for me at that moment in my career, because if she hadn't said it just that way to me, and by the way, she wouldn't have said it that way to other people because they're maybe less bullheaded than I am. But if she hadn't said it just that way to me, I wouldn't have gone to see the speech coach where I learned that Cheryl was not exaggerating. I really did say, um, every third word. And this was real news to me because I had been giving presentations my entire career. I had raised millions of dollars for a couple of startups giving presentations. I thought I was pretty good at it. And this got me to thinking, why had nobody told me? It was like I'd been walking around my whole career with spinach between my teeth, but nobody had had the common courtesy to tell me. And I realized that it was really two things about Cheryl that made it so seemingly easy for her to tell me, but also so difficult for other people to just say it. And one was that she cared about me as a human being, uh, as a real person, not just as an employee. But also, she never let her concern for my short-term feelings get in the way of her willingness to challenge directly. And really... The whole idea of radical candor is based on those two ideas: challenge directly and care personally at the same time.
1: So that story went on to launch your passion for radical candor, and I love my team will tell you I love my two by two matrices. So uh, I was drawn to yours. Yes. <laughs> so so that, that, those are the two axes of of the radical candor. Can you walk us through the the matrix and then the quadrants and and how they play out?
0: Yes, absolutely. So let's first think about care personally. What is it that moves us down on the care personally dimension of radical candor? It's not, nobody starts out their career thinking, I don't give a damn about other people, so I think I'm going to be a great boss. You know, that's not what happens. What happens is we're 18, 19 years old, we get our first job, and somebody comes along and says, be professional. And I think for an awful lot of people, that gets translated to mean, leave your emotions, leave your true identity, leave everything that is best about you at home and come to work like some kind of robot. And you can't possibly care personally about others if you're showing up to work like some kind of robot. So that's one problem. The other problem is the challenge directly dimension. Colin Powell said, sometimes leadership is the willingness to piss people off. <laughs> and, and yet, you know, our unwillingness to piss people off begins not when we're 18 years old, but when we're 18 months old, and we have a parent who says some version of, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all to us. And now, all of a sudden, especially if you're a manager, but in general at work, to be a good colleague, it's your job to say it. Radical candor requires undoing training that's been pounded into us since we were 18 months old and 18 years old. This whole be professional stuff, or if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all idiom. So how can we be radically candid when we have all this sort of powerful training behind us? It's hard. One of the things that I've done, which I hope makes it easier, is to develop this two by two that you mentioned which sort of points out in strong language what happens when we fail on one dimension or another. So when you do challenge directly, but you fail to show that you care personally, I call that obnoxious aggression. Now, I used to call that the asshole quadrant, but but I stopped... (laughs) It seemed more radically candid, right? But I stopped doing that for a very important reason because as soon as I did that, people would use the two by two to start writing names in boxes. And I beg of you, please don't use this two by two that way. It's not, these terms are not sort of labels for other people or a way to judge yourself harshly the way to use the framework is to guide conversations in a better direction. So it's more like a compass, it's not like a Myers-Briggs personality test or something like that. So that's obnoxious aggression, when you do challenge but you fail to show you care. Now very often, once we've been obnoxiously aggressive, once we realize we've been a jerk, the temptation is to move the wrong direction on challenge directly, instead of to go the right direction on care personally. And if you do that, you wind up in the worst quadrant of all, manipulative insincerity. This is where you neither show you care nor challenge directly. And manipulative insincerity is sort of backstabbing behavior, political behavior, the false apology, all that kind of stuff, passive-aggressive behavior that we love to talk about <laughs> about people doing at work. And we also love to tell the obnoxious aggression stories But the fact of the matter is, by far the most common mistakes that get made at work, and and frankly, in all relationships, happen when we do show we care. We are concerned for other people's feelings. And because we're so concerned for their feelings, we fail to tell them something they really need to know. We fail to challenge directly. And that mistake I call ruinous empathy. And that's the one that the book spends a lot of time trying to help people overcome.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I have always said that I prefer, and I think you just alluded to this, I prefer open aggression much better than passive aggressiveness. Passive aggressiveness is just the worst to me.
0: It is the worst. And yet, and we all know that. And yet we all wind up doing it sometimes. Uh, We all wind up saying things we don't really mean just to placate somebody's feelings.
1: So why is radical candor, I mean, touch on this a little bit, but why is it such an unnatural act for most people? Is it just that they've, is it this learned behavior over a long time and they have to undo it? Or are we just generally societally not comfortable with telling people the truth?
0: Well, I think a couple of things. One is just the, I, the very idea of telling people the truth. The fact of the matter is we don't know what the truth is usually. We know what we think. What we think is, yeah. We, we, yeah, we might be wrong. And so very often from a young age, you know, children are so sure they're right about everything and they're so blunt and it gets them in trouble. And it's hard to be nuanced with kids. I mean, I myself, I have twins who are nine, and I'm tempted sometimes to say, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all, because they come out with some real doozies. So I think part of the problem is just being a little bit nuanced in how we teach people from a young age to be kind and respectful of others without lying to them. and it's you know it's easier to focus on one thing at a time than two things and and being radically candid requires you to be kind and clear at the same time and and that can be hard and requires some finesse and some nuance so i think that's a big part of it i think also we are programmed to learn the most from the biggest disasters And sometimes you will get, you will try to be radically candid with someone and you will get a really terrible reaction from them, like a really terrible, they'll blow up, they'll start to cry, uh, they'll start to yell at you, whatever. And those experiences, I think, loom so large in our minds that we forget that nine times out of 10, people actually genuinely appreciate the radical candor.
1: Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. It's advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The Pay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. Yeah, and then I think if how you react to it probably determines if you're going to get it the next time, right?
0: Yes. Yes. Well, how you react to their reaction. I think there's another problem that I noticed in my career. And it's that a lot of feedback training sort of teaches people to believe that if they say it just right, they can control the other person's reaction. And that's just not true. You can't control or predict how another person is going to react to what you tell them. All you can do is start out sort of gently, notice how they respond, and then move in the right direction. If somebody gets really upset, you can react with compassion. If somebody is blowing you off the way I was to Cheryl, you've got to move out on the on the challenge directly dimension probably more than you're comfortable doing. So I think that sometimes well-meaning training on feedback actually further paralyzes people because it leaves them with the sense that if they get a bad reaction they've failed in some way and that's that's not true you're going to get tears you're going to get anger you're going to get some emotion if you tell somebody when their work isn't nearly good enough they care about their work and it's normal that they react i think one of the best things you can do is just eliminate the phrase don't take it personally <laughs> from your vocabulary And react with human compassion. Like, of course, people take it personally.
1: Yeah, that's a crutch phrase. There there are a couple of people on my team who've started with, well, if I'm telling you honestly, I'm like, well, you got got to stop saying that. I, I hope it is honestly. Yes. So for someone who's listening to this and they say, oh, that's my boss in the manipulative insincerity quadrant is it hopeless? What can they do? I mean, how, I mean, do they need to have some radical candor about the way that, that they're behaving? I mean, is that something people really can move themselves away from if they don't want to do it?
0: Yes. So I think you have two questions. One is, what happens if your boss is being manipulatively insincere? How can you lure your boss towards radical candor? And the second is, what if you self-identify that you yourself are being ruinously empathetic or, or manipulatively insincere? Is that, is that the question?
1: Yeah. The first one was the question. The, the second one's interesting too. If, you, if you're listening to this in either way, you say, oh, geez, I think I've been, think I've been doing that right. or that is my boss. What are the next steps there?
0: Right. So the first step is as soon as you hear this and you start associating one of those phrases I just uttered with a person, stop. You're making the fundamental attribution error, right? You're just saying, oh, this person is that way and therefore they're useless. And if that's your mentality going into the conversation, you're probably not going to move it in a great direction. So you've got to, I think there's, there's an order of operations for radical candor, whether you're planning a conversation with your boss, a peer, or an employee. And the order of operations is start by soliciting feedback. Start by asking what you could do or stop doing to make it easier to work with that person. Because it's very tempting. You should, most of us in our relationships, especially frustrating relationships at work, have feedback debt. Sometimes there's technical debt, but in relationships there's feedback debt. And very often we've gotten so frustrated by that other person that all we can do and see in that in our interactions with that person is this thing that frustrates us. So if we take a step back and try to imagine from that person's perspective, what are we doing ourselves that might be contributing to the problem? And ask the person, And be prepared not to get defensive when when the person answers you uh, so that you can understand things from the other person's perspective a little bit. So that's the first order of operations. The second thing you should do is focus on the good stuff, not in the feedback sandwich or there's the less polite way of phrasing it, the shit sandwich kind of way, but really focus on the good stuff. What is it about this person that you genuinely enjoy? that you genuinely appreciate and verbalize that, like give voice to the things that you like about working with that person. Because again, we very often have feedback debt and we forget all the good stuff because we're so frustrated by the bad stuff. Uh, I had a friend who worked on Wall Street and she got a, a new boss. And this guy was known as like the biggest a-hole on Wall Street. And that's saying something, right? So yeah. she was a little nervous. She was a little nervous about this new boss. And she adopted this mantra, there is only love. She refused to talk badly about this guy, even to her husband, and definitely not to anybody at work. She would only say good things. Now, to him, she also said what she appreciated. But having done that, she then told him when he did things that made it impossible for her to be productive at work. And she told him directly. And so once you've solicited feedback, step number one, step number two... Think about the things you like and actually give the person some praise. Step number three is to say, there's something that's bothering me. Can I tell you about it? And then just tell the person and start gently and figure out if the person hears you and and is incredibly defensive and then you have to manage that. Or if the person hears you and is angry or upset. Then you've got to move the right direction on care personally. You've got to show some compassion for the emotion. Don't dismiss it. Uh, But don't back off your challenge. Don't get pushed by the other person's emotional outburst into one of the bad quadrants. If somebody yells at you, the temptation is for you to have an obnoxiously aggressive reaction to their obnoxious aggression. Don't let that happen. Like You can't control someone else's emotions, but if you're batting above average... You can manage your own emotions. And then sometimes you'll tell somebody something. Most often what happens is you think you've said it so clearly. You've just sort of geared up your courage to say this thing, but the person hasn't heard you at all. And now you have to say it again more strongly, and that is hard.
1: Well, one, one of the things that we've always tried to stress, and, and it, it's kind of an irony, we, we've used the situation, behavior, outcome framework and feedback, but I think, and you talked about this in the book, and I'd love to hear some examples for people around, um, you need to care personally, but you need to depersonalize the feedback when you talked about, you talked about the Cheryl Sandberg example, you know, she said it made you sound stupid, not that you were stupid. I, I think the mistake a lot of people make is in personalizing the feedback. So can you give people some examples of the difference between caring personally and then how you depersonalize the feedback so they get at the, what is the problem or the outcome with the behavior?
0: Yeah, it's so important because the goal of, of feedback is to help people improve, to help people change something. and if you criticize somebody's personality, it's really hard to change your personality. So if you say the problem here is you're negative, maybe the person feels, yes, you're right. I do I, I do kind of have a negative personality and it's hopeless. So you want to make sure that you're you're giving feedback. I mean there's as you say there's a world of difference between Cheryl saying to me in the meeting, that's the situation. And by the way, she doesn't have to describe the situation in great gory detail because she's giving the feedback right away so that yeah. it's more efficient. When you say um, every third word, that's the behavior. It made you sound stupid. World of difference between saying that and saying, Kim, the problem here is you're stupid. Because like, if that really is the problem, there's not much I can do about it. <laughs>
1: Right. And I was going to say, part of that is why, why it's bad for you, right? It's actually something we try to stress in a lot of our client communications too, about why is it bad for the person, right? Because then, then you're going to get their attention. Yes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Why, why, this is part of the, the sort of things that I think that are helpful to go into a conversation, especially all these things are true of praise, by the way, as well as of criticism. But you want to go in in the mindset that you're, you're trying to be helpful to that person, So that's why explaining why changing this thing, whatever it is, or doing more of it in the case of praise, is gonna help that person succeed. So you're aligning your interests and that person's interests. You're explaining what's in it for them. So the helpful is really important. The humble is also really important. I think that feedback is a gift in one of two ways. Either it's a gift because you're right about what you're saying and the person, because you've told the person they can change it, or you're wrong about what you're saying, but only if you tell the person what you think can they change your mind. So, so remember that, that the idea here is that you're not, it's not like you have a pipeline to God and the other person is an ignoramus, right? <laughs> you you want to make sure you're going in being humble. And also you want to give the feedback right away, immediately. Feedback has a short half-life. And you want to do it in person, if at all possible, because most of communication is nonverbal. And you won't really know which vector to choose on the radical candor two by two, if you're not doing it in person, because you won't know how the, the other person is reacting. And then you want to praise in public, criticize in private. And most importantly, as you said, you don't want to make it about personality. It may be a very personal issue. It could be like Person as bo, um, but you don't want to say you know you're a dirty person. <laughs> yeah. It's just uh, it's just you know when you don't wear deodorant, you get bo.
1: What should the half life on feedback be? I, I heard. Someone from the Ritz-Carlton speak a few years ago, and they said, and we've tried to emulate this, probably not as well as we could have, but they had this 72-hour rule. You either had to give it within 72 hours or you had to sit on it because they called it targeting. You know, someone showing up to a performance review with three or six months of grievances that they weren't willing to speak up with in the moment on that. So I'm curious if you have a, a philosophy on the, on the half-life of when it should be given.
0: Yeah, I mean, 72 hours maximum to bring it up the first time, and hopefully to deal with the issue. I do think, though, that sometimes when you're giving a performance review, it's useful to remind the person of things that you've already talked about in the past. But nobody should hear anything for the first time in a performance review. So I think the 72-hour rule is a great one.
1: And what percent of companies would you say that that is true?
0: Zero. Zero. I mean, probably not even at Ritz-Carlton. Uh, not because companies are bad. It's just yeah. it's really hard to do this. It's it's sort of an emotional discipline that most of us lack. I mean, giving the the best feedback I've ever gotten in my career always happens in these two minute conversations, right after the meet, like within an hour. Usually, walking out, I've said or done something, and as soon as the meeting's over and we can get a private moment somebody pulls me aside and we talk and that's always been in my experience the most effective way to give and to get feedback it's interesting it's a 2 minute conversation doesn't require any planning doesn't require any extra calendaring um so it's fast it's free doesn't cost anything but it does require enormous emotional discipline and really changing habits of a lifetime. Uh, so, once you get in the habit of doing this at work, it's like brushing and flossing. You feel gross if you don't do it. Right. But getting, in, getting into the habit, and it shouldn't, these kind of feedback conversations shouldn't feel like a root canal, by the way, to pursue the dental <laughs> analogy for a minute. It really should feel pretty fast and just like basic hygiene, but getting into the habit is hard.
1: Yeah, because if the point of feedback is to learn, it's almost offensive for you four months later to sit down and tell me about something you've been stewing about for four months, right? (laughs) When I've probably made the same mistake over and over again.
0: Yeah, exactly. It it feels like one of those middle school relationships where (laughs) you have your first breakup and somebody brings up this tiny thing from six months ago. And yet the systems that we put in place around management kind of foster that, that kind of bad behavior inadvertently. I think, uh, I think feedback systems, I think performance reviews are actually quite important to do. But if they become a substitute for the hygiene of these impromptu feedback conversations, it's like capping a rotting tooth. It's just going to make it rot faster.
1: Yeah, no, it's just the standards that people operate from, I don't think are very productive, but they, one of the great things about the book is that you're giving people a framework on how to do it. I think there's a lot of things in business that have been carried on from generation to generation because people just don't know a better way to do it. So they do what's been done to them. I'm writing my second book about using capacity building as a leadership strategy. And you touched on this a little bit, in the book, but how do you see one's ability to give and receive feedback well associated with their ability to build capacity?
0: It's a great question, and and I'm excited to read your second book. You know, you cannot possibly build capacity. You, You cannot possibly learn and improve if you don't know what you're doing wrong. And so one of your first jobs as a leader is to really solicit feedback from the people who work for you. You are going to get the best feedback of your career from your employees because very few people are going to observe you as closely <laughs> as your employees do. They're going to watch every move you make, and they're, and they're going to criticize it. They're going to critique it. And if you can learn what they're thinking and what they're observing, nothing will improve you more as a leader. Now, the second reason to solicit feedback is because it gives you an opportunity to teach your team that you view feedback as a gift. And it gives them the opportunity to see that their feedback doesn't make you weaker as a leader. It makes you stronger. That your willingness to hear about mistakes you're making is the source of your strength. And that's going to make them, in turn, much more willing to hear feedback from you and from their colleagues. And, And it's really around soliciting feedback as a leader that you build that culture of feedback. That's the right place to start. I mean, you've got to give it too, but yeah. start by soliciting it.
1: Learning to give it is probably in, in terms of if you're going to improve as a leader and you can't give it, then you're you're already cutting yourself short there.
0: Yes, exactly. But start by learning to take it. Don't dish yeah. it out until <laughs> you prove you can take it.
1: <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break for a message from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with Kim. Hi, I'm Adam Grant. As a Wharton psychologist, I've spent most of my career studying two big questions. How do we unlock original thinking and build cultures of productive generosity? With those questions in mind, I recently co-founded a pretty extraordinary community dedicated to discovering groundbreaking ideas while trying to make the world a better place. It's called the Next Big Idea Club. Together, my friends Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Dan Pink, and I search far and wide for the eight most original, most essential nonfiction books of the year, and we send them straight to you. We also interview the authors, and we send you the key insights across video, audio, and text formats. And remember, this is a book club, so when you join the exclusive online forum, you get the chance to discuss every season's selections, not just with other members, but also with me, Malcolm, Susan, and Dan. Get insider insights from Dan Pink, Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, and Adam Grant, and sign up for the Next Big Idea Club today at www.nextbigideaclub.com 10 off, and get 10% off your subscription. Welcome back, everyone. So, Kim, one of the things you talked about in the book was this notion of A player and B player and C player and how that's a a lot misused. And you talked about the concept instead of of rock star and, and superstars. It really helped me think about how we think about that, particularly in a company that's always growing. And I think it's an open debate around you can't have everyone always wanting uh, better because you need people who want to, you know, operate where you are today. So can you can you walk through the difference between rock star and superstar a bit?
0: Sure, absolutely. I mean, my fundamental belief here is that there's no such thing as a B player. And it's just a cop out to dismiss people as B players. Every single human being has real potential to be great at some kind of work. One of the most offensive experiences of my career was when I was working with a leader, we were doing some call center work, and this leader just didn't have respect for the work and didn't think the work was important, and therefore decided that, that he needed to hire B players to do this work. And I thought that is a recipe for failure. That is a recipe for a really crappy customer experience. (laughs) And that's not how we're going to do things here. So you want to make sure that you understand that for every job that you have in a company, you want to respect the work and the people who do the work. And you want everyone to have an opportunity to be excellent at their work. But I do think that there are two very different kinds of people who are excellent at the work. Some of the people are those who are great at the work, but who are going to be hungry to grow, who are going to want to change things, who are going to want to be doing different work you know, in the near future, who keep growing and expanding their skill sets. And then there are other people who are great at the job and they're happy to keep doing it. They don't necessarily want to pour a ton of energy into learning the next job. And you want a balance of both of those kinds of people. So the people who are eager to change, the sort of change agents on your team, I call the superstars. And the people who are great at their job and happy to keep doing it, I call the rock stars. And you want to make sure that these, again, are not labels. People are in superstar mode, they're in rock star mode, and we shift between these modes throughout our lives and careers. And you want to make sure you're creating the opportunity for people to be flexible and to shift between these these kinds of roles in their careers. But you want to make sure that you're managing these two different kinds of outstanding performers very differently because... If you push people when they're in when they're in rock star mode to be learning the next job, you're gonna push them away. If you don't respect them for being good at their job and not necessarily wanting the next job, you're gonna push them away. If you give all the highest ratings to the people who are in superstar mode, who are who are hungering for the next promotion, then you're gonna make a big mistake and demoralize people when they're in rock star mode. I mean the the reward for superstar mode is the promotion it's not necessarily the high rating so you want to make sure that you're being fair to both your to people when they're in different modes when people are in superstar mode and you, the manager, are in rockstar mode, sometimes the temptation is to clip the wings of the superstars. And that's a terrible mistake, too. You're, they may not stay on your team forever. They may want to go and do something different. But while they're in your orbit, they do amazing work. They usually go well above and beyond what's expected. And that's great. You're lucky to have them while, while you do.
1: Yeah, no, it, it's a really interesting way of thinking about it. And I think that any, anyone who would read that chapter, that section would have a different perspective on the conversations in their organization if they've been talking about A players and B players and do we need B players. And they, I hear these conversations all the time and I just think it's such a, a better way to think about it and how to use your people in the, in the right way.
0: Yeah. I mean, think about, do you want to be called a B player? Like, it's, uh, no, of course not. And then right. if you have people on your team who are doing great work, who you care about, do you want to think of them as a B player? No, but that doesn't mean you need to put them up for promotion, right? It doesn't right. mean promotion is the, there's a lot of, there's a lot of growth obsession. I think particularly where I live here in Silicon Valley, yeah, absolutely. But, but we also, we need to balance growth and stability.
1: When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at LinkedIn.com slash practical. That's LinkedIn.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. No, if you had all stability, you'd have no innovation. If you had all growth, you'd have chaos. Probably. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, and and exhaustion and burnout and you know, so so you need both. You need both in your in your life, you need both in your work, you need both on your team.
1: Sounds like another two by two matrix that, yes. that might be coming. <laughs> One of the areas where I think companies really struggle with candor is in how people leave the organization, either voluntarily or involuntarily. We have tried mm-hmm. to use candor specifically in the development of what we call our mindful transition program, which is our moonshot to eliminate two weeks notice. Yes. Why is it so hard for employees and employers to be honest when something is not working out for either side?
0: Well, I mean, the very worst part of being a manager is having to fire people. When you're having to fire someone, it's generally emotionally traumatic for that other person and emotionally traumatic for you. You as a leader feel like in some way you failed to quote unquote save the person, which is a crazy way to look at it. But even great leaders often do. They feel... They get their egos attached with helping somebody else succeed in a job that just may not be right for them for whatever reason. It's brutal to watch the emotions that it causes in the other person when you when you have to fire them. So it's totally understandable that we run and hide in <laughs> euphemism around leaving, you know when when and if you're quitting a company, you know there's all this don't burn bridges you want to leave on a good note and very very few companies are good at really doing exit interviews because it is an opportunity to learn what is going badly in your organization when somebody leaves but it's you know again it's all these all these emotions get you know wrapped up in a in a tight knot so if you can just sort of pull them apart like any problem You want to make sure that you are are parsing it and breaking it apart into its smallest parts in order to solve it.
1: But isn't giving two weeks notice in itself almost burning bridges in some cases? Like I, I like to give the analogy that if you're in a marriage, and I understand there's some paradigm here and some fear on behalf of the employee. But if you're in a marriage and you're like, you know what, I'm 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 moving in two weeks and I have a new partner and we bought a house <laughs> and this is the first that yeah. anyone heard about it. You, the, the, it, yeah. it seems so it seems so silly in the relationship context, but I feel yeah. like it. It, it, is, <laughs> it does happen, but happens a lot more in in the work context where the employee just couldn't have that radical candor conversation around being in the wrong thing, being unhappy. Someone in their family was mm-hmm. moving. They just I don't know whether they couldn't have it or they're not sure that the organization would be receptive to it.
0: Well, I think the onus is on the leaders at a company to create an environment where it's safe to speak truth to power Yeah, uh, for sure. I think also very often people are afraid that the choice of the date will be taken away from them. And that if they say what they're unhappy about, they'll get fired. So they want to they set up, they want to make sure that they have an exit plan. Yeah. And I think it's really important for leaders to make it clear to people that it's okay to leave. It's okay to be unhappy, but you've got to prove that you're not going to pull the rug out from under people. That does take time, but it's absolutely doable. Uh, again, a lot of this goes back to soliciting, getting good at soliciting impromptu feedback as a leader. Another thing that I've noticed is that I've gotten the best feedback from people when they're mad at me, but it's tempting to avoid people when you know they're mad at you. So if you, as a leader, can manage not to get triggered yourself, but go and talk to people when you know they're angry at you. You'll often hear about problems much earlier on. And, you know, there's also this denial. It's so hard to lose an employee and you just are hoping it won't happen. Yeah. So often you kind of see that there's a problem, but you don't ask. You don't ask why or what's going on. And that's a terrible mistake.
1: Well, I just saw a stat that said that even at the all the best places to work, whether it was uh, Google or Apple, I, the, the tenure was 1.8 years, I think, at this point. So even when these companies that people love, they're going to leave. And, and I think this is the sort of intellectual radical candor that people need to have with themselves as leaders is that you probably shouldn't assume people on your team are going to stay for five or 10 years <laughs> in when, when the data doesn't, doesn't show otherwise.
0: Doesn't bear that out. Oh, yeah. well, and I think the other thing to remember is that people join companies and leave managers yeah and so another thing that can really help prevent this two weeks notice deal is uh, is to have what I call speak truth to power meetings. So recognizing that it is very difficult for people to offer their boss radical candor, you as the boss's boss can go in and talk, have a meeting with all of the direct reports of your direct reports and meet the, meet with them together. Otherwise, you'll spend all your time having these so-called skip level. I hate the word skip level meeting because it sounds so hierarchical. Yeah. <laughs> but if you gather the team together without the manager in the room and say, what could this manager do or stop doing to be a better boss to you all? You know, at first it's gonna be incredibly awkward and yeah. painful, but if you can push through the discomfort of that meeting and, and get everybody in the room to go around and say what they really appreciate about working with that person and, you know, one or two things they wish would change, you'll find that you learn about things that people are doing that they don't know they're doing much faster so they can fix them. And that's important not only for the bosses, but for all the people who work for the boss. And occasionally you'll learn that you have somebody who just has no business leading people. And that's painful to learn, but the sooner you learn it, the better. So I think that's another thing that can really help build a culture of radical candor and and help people find a way to give voice to problems when they see them and speak truth to power.
1: Yeah. You mentioned this in the book, but there's a lot of people who don't want to be managers, but they've been sort of conditioned that that's the only way to grow. And I think you said organizations need to make it safe for more individual contributor roles, right?
0: Yes. And for growth in the individual contributor roles. Google has done this really well with, uh, in the engineering organization uh, where, where the, you can progress. There's There's not a ceiling on your career. You can keep progressing and and never have to manage people. That doesn't always scale at every organization. But in most places, you can keep giving people responsibility and bigger roles and keep them learning without having to require them to become managers.
1: So I'm fascinated, you talked a little bit about before, by the ruinous empathy quadrant. Uh, I, I, you know, the first mm-hmm. couple of times I saw it, I don't think I actually intellectualized it. And it took me about a year to think about it and see it. And then I was writing an article about the dangers of helicopter parenting and removing obstacles. And it was kind of like a light bulb yeah. moment for me. It was like, oh, that's yeah. ruinous empathy. Now I get it. Yes. I see it in in family situations, probably a a lot more than work. So can you talk about why you think it's the most dangerous form of feedback?
0: Well, the problem with, with ruinous empathy is that people don't know that there's a problem, and so they don't fix it. For me, one of the most painful moments in my whole career came when I had hired this guy. We'll call him Bob. And I really liked Bob. He was smart. He was funny. He was charming. He would do stuff like we were at a manager offsite and we were playing one of those endless get to know you games and nobody wanted to do it, but nobody had the nerve to say, this is a waste of time. And Bob was the guy who had the courage to say, hey, I've got a great idea and it'll be way faster. And so we were all, whatever his idea was, we were down with it. And Bob said, let's just go around the table and tell each other what kind of candy our parents used when potty training us. Weird, but fast. And then for the next 10 months, every time there's a tense moment in a meeting, Bob would whip out just the right piece of candy for the right person at the right moment. So anyway, we liked Bob. He was quirky. He was fun to work with. Uh, One problem with Bob, he was doing terrible work, absolutely terrible work. And I, I was puzzled about what was going on. He had this amazing resume, all these past accomplishments. I learned later the problem was he was smoking pot in the bathroom three times a day, which maybe explained, all that candy. But anyway, I didn't know any of that at the time. All I knew is that he would hand stuff into me and there would be shame in his eyes. And instead of telling him that his work wasn't nearly good enough, I would say something like, oh, Bob, this is such a great start. You're so awesome. You're so smart. We all love working with you. Maybe you can make it just a little better, you know, because I didn't want to hurt his feelings. Of course, he never does make it better. And all his colleagues are having to cover for him and redo his work. And this goes on for 10 months. And eventually, the inevitable happens. And I realize, if I don't fire Bob, I'm going to lose my best employees. And so, I sit down to tell Bob where things stand. and When I finished talking, he pushes the chair back, he looks me right in the eye, and he said, why didn't you tell me? And as that question is going around in my head, he said, why didn't anyone tell me? I thought you all cared about me. And it was probably one of the worst moments in my career, and yet it was too late to save Bob. Even Bob at this point agreed he should go. All I could do in in that moment was make myself a very solemn promise that I would never make that mistake again, and and that's why I wrote the book Radical Candor and came up with a framework so that I can help you avoid those Bob moments because they're terrible.
1: And has Bob has Bob reached out to you since you've written the book?
0: Bob has not. <laughs> Bob is not. Although I do I do happen to know that he's doing well. He's in a good job, and he seems to have gotten his pot habit under control. <laughs>
1: Good. Well, yeah, you know, I read a comment that you made about how radical candor was depicted recently in the show Silicon Valley, and you you, you weren't very yeah. ha- you weren't very happy about it. So,
0: uh, well, I wasn't that unhappy because <laughs> it sold a lot of books. Uh, that like doubled our sales that week. But yeah, no, it was definitely obnoxious aggression mistaken for radical candor, and that is a very common mistake. It's one of the most painful things that happens. Like I'll, I'll walk into a room and somebody will say in the spirit of radical candor, and then they proceed to be a total jerk. Yeah, And that's not radical candor. That's obnoxious aggression. So I probably got a little defensive about
1: it. That's what I was going to ask you. How, how do people not go back after listening to this discussion or the book and, and how do they really draw that line? Oh, I'm going to just start telling everyone and everything that's on on my mind? You know, what, what are some guideposts to let them know that they're operating in the right quadrant and not the wrong quadrant?
0: Well, you know, there's no universal measure for radical candor. It gets measured not at your mouth, but at the other person's ear. Yeah. So the the only way that you can know that you're being radically candid and not obnoxiously aggressive or radically candid and not ruinously empathetic is to gauge the other person's reaction to ask the other person how it's going from their perspective. You know, it's hard to know what's going on at somebody, somebody else's ear. You know what your intentions are. If you're self-aware, you know what your intentions are. And you know what's coming out of your mouth, but it's hard to know how it's getting interpreted. So that's why sort of slowing down asking, a, a shared vocabulary can be very helpful. Like it's hard enough to give feedback, and then to ask for feedback on your feedback starts to feel really tedious. So it's useful to be able to have a shortcut for those conversations, and that's part of the reason why I think the framework is helpful. Uh, if you see that somebody's not reacting well to some feedback you're giving them, you can just ask, say, how you know, I feel like maybe I'm being obnoxiously aggressive here. How could I say this better uh, or I feel like I'm not getting through to you. And if I don't say it more strongly, I'm gonna wind up being ruinously empathetic, but I'm gonna feel mean if I do say it more strongly. Like what's a better way to get through to you? Can be very, very helpful.
1: You frequently post radical candor tips on Twitter. And a recent one I saw was around the topic of giving praise and what to do if someone is remote. Caught my eye because our company is mostly distributed. So, have you found that it's more challenging for companies to care personally and challenge directly with remote workers?
0: Yes. I mean, so much of communication is nonverbal, is seen with body language or facial expression. And so, if you're not in the same place, it's way harder to gauge the other person's reaction. But it's not impossible one of the things that I have found is that there's a hierarchy of medium. So if you if you do work with people who are not in the same location as you are, try to use video conferencing as much as possible. You can get, you know, 60% uh, fidelity if you can at least see the person reacting, if you can see their face. If you can't use video conferencing the telephone is way better than email. And email is usually a little better than text because we're so short over text. But I think in general, there's no excuse for resorting to written communication only. Uh, At least pick up the phone and call the person. And in an ideal world, have a, a, a video conference. Another thing that I have found with remote employees is that more frequent check-ins are better than longer, less frequent ones. So if you're in the same location with somebody, uh, a 45-minute one-on-one once a week is probably enough, is almost certainly enough, because you're going to bump into them in the hallway. You're going to see them. You're going to kind of have a sense of what's going on with the person. But if somebody's remote, it's a good idea to try to talk to them every day if possible for five or 10 minutes you know, it's a little harder to schedule. But if you're flexible, and work on just finding a a mutually convenient time, that can be really helpful. Another thing that can be helpful if you're in different time zones, and you don't want to travel all the time is just to work in a different time zone. So when I was Pregnant, I was. I, I was unable to travel. I was pregnant with twins and grounded, but I was managing teams in I think ten different countries. And so one week per quarter, I would work uh, Europe hours, and one week per quarter, I would work Asian hours. And that way, I didn't have to fly. But I there's just more surface time with the uh, remote people. And I would do sort of theatrical things like have a be- beer. I mean, I was pregnant, so I couldn't really drink, but I would have a bottle of beer uh, on the video conference at some crazy hour, California time. So those things can help.
1: Uh, so yeah, there are a lot more remote companies these days. And I think it presents new challenges for managers and, and figuring out different ways to, to do things. So I think there's some great tips in there that people can take advantage of.
0: You know, it's so interesting because getting people to sort of not rely on technology and remember that there's a human being they're working with is incredibly difficult in today's world. Shortly after I sold the book, I started a company to build an app that was supposed to help people be more radically candid. And I realized that my goal was to teach people how to put their damn phones in their pockets, look each other in the eye, and talk. And the app was kind of a value-subtracting round trip for that. So we uh, we shut the app down. But it's really surprisingly difficult to allow technology to actually help us connect. It so often comes in between us.
1: Yeah, it's not... It's hard. I think it, for as much productivity gains as we get, we're losing a lot, too, in the, in the human interaction department. And that's interesting uh, about the app. I could see how it might be used in the, in the wrong ways, <laughs> exactly the ways they you yes. know, didn't want it to be used.
0: Yeah, yeah. A lot of companies are doing the same thing, too. And, and now people are, instead of giving each other impromptu oral feedback, they're writing it down, which is a disaster. Yeah. So much better to have a quick conversation.
1: Yeah, we try to make video the default for everything um, where it can't be in person. So for a business leader who's listening to this and says, God, we need to do this. Um, you know, h- h- How do they get started? Or, and, and can you also maybe explain a little bit about how Radical Candor, the company, works with businesses who want to uh, adopt these principles?
0: Sure, absolutely. Uh, th- so there's a lot of a lot of resources for for people. We Radical Candor, the company, offer talks and workshops that help people roll out the ideas in the book. You know, we'll come in, we'll we'll work with your team in person. But that, of course, doesn't always scale perfectly well. In fact, part of the reason I wrote the book is that there were so many people who I wanted to coach, but I couldn't coach because I don't scale. I'm a human being. And so I really wrote the book to offer step-by-step practical suggestions for things you can do. And I even wrote an order of operations in the book. So a lot of companies who uh, who are in a situation where they they can't afford to pay for the talks and the workshops will actually buy the book and read it with a group of managers and, and they'll go a chapter a month and they'll implement the ideas in the book. And that has also proven effective. But it's been so interesting to see how different companies take different parts of the book and, and roll them out and have great success with them. It's really, it's been very fun to watch.
1: Well, with that, how can people get in touch with you if they want to work with you?
0: Uh, so Kim at radical candor or Jason at radical candor is our email at Kimball. Scott is me on Twitter at candor is, uh, is the company on Twitter. And, uh, and we're, we're always, uh, publishing blog posts and we've got a lot of resources on our website, which is radicalcandor.com.
1: Yeah. And I'll put a plug for the Twitter following, as I mentioned before, they have some great infographics that they put out, uh, each week. And I think they're really helpful to actually bring back to your team if you're trying to implement pieces of it.
0: Great. Thank you. And don't forget to buy the book. I think the book is great too.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Kim, I can't say enough positive things about your book, Radical Candor. It should definitely be a must read for anyone who's managing and leading others. Uh, The concepts you'd write about are things we've worked to implement with our company. And I know that it's been instrumental in our ability to create an award-winning culture. So I really appreciate you taking the time to join us on Outperform today.
0: Great conversation. Thank you so much.
1: All right. So for our listeners, you'll find all the links, including where to find the book and everything Kim just spoke about discussed within the episode in the show notes. Thanks again for your continued support. And until next time, keep elevating.